Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Now, this morning, I want to talk to you for a few minutes before we re- read our text. Um, in the Western world today, and not, not just the Western world, but also the Far East, there is a movement away from marriage. And so I was talking to Jürgen, our friend from, uh, pastor from Germany. He was saying that in Europe, all across Europe, everybody is very aware of the fact that men and women are simply uninterested in each other. Any of you know the name Tom Wolfe, the fiction writer? Okay, Tom Wolfe had an essay about 25 years ago called Hooking Up. And it was an essay talking about just the rank fornication going on among young, young men and women at the time. So this is a quarter century ago. And he said the problem with this hooking up culture is that nobody's even interested in sex and marriage anymore. That was a quarter century ago. All right? What is true then has become true in <laughs> spades today. <laughs> um, we today live in a culture in the West, Japan has it too, where men and women simply aren't interested in each other anymore. All the romance is gone. If you don't like your spouse, you, you divorce them. And then, if you're going to divorce your spouse, you better not have children, because if you have children, the courts will make sure you don't have them anymore, especially if you're the man. And so men are at an incredible disadvantage in the court system, family court today, because typically uh, they will have a female ad litem watching over the children as if the father is incapable and not to be trusted. They will have a female judge. They will have female attorneys. And then there's the shrew who is divorcing him. (laughs) Now you say, what do you mean shrew? Well, um, have you ever heard of William Shakespeare, anybody? He has a play that's called The Taming of the Shrew. So there must be shrews somewhere. I'm not sure where they are. We've never had them in our church, right? Present company accepted. And so the world today is filled with men who are so oppressed everywhere they turn. They have women governors, they have women mayors, they have women bosses, and then they get home and they have a shrew. Nothing they do is right. They can't discipline their children because their wife will contravene their discipline. And these men are angry. And that's called red pill. It's a movement. Or it's called MGTOW. Men going their own way. It's an acronym. MGTOW. What God created to be beautiful... What every single day and night, when I get up and go to sleep, and often during the day I love, which is my wife. 45 years now. 
what's, not, what's really notable about my love for my wife is how completely absent it is in our world today. And listen, I know why it's absent, because it is hard work. And if you don't know what hard work it is, listen to the podcast of my wife recently. <laughs> Has anybody here listened to my wife tell the story of our marriage? Uh, Caitlin, do you think I had my work cut out for me? <laughs> Trust me, all of you, listen to the podcast. Katie Walker and Michael interview Mary Lee about the beginning of our marriage. And let me tell you, I had my safety belt fastened, and I was ready to grab the oxygen from the ceiling above me. <laughs> when I married Mary Lee, she didn't want to get married. You know, she wanted to live without benefit of marriage and go on a bike trip down the West Coast, 101. Oh, yeah, buddy. And that was just the beginning. That was before we were even married. And so women are a formidable force. Don't you ever forget this. Adam lost. God rebuked Adam, saying to him, because you listened to the voice of your wife. <laughs> Adam got whooped, okay? And so there are a bunch of men who are a part of the Red Pill and MGTOW uh, movements today who are, who are their attitude is to heck with it, to heck with it. I don't need it. But here's the problem. The problem is those men are impure, and Christians know that God will judge us on the basis of our sexual morality. <laughs> so we at least have a problem. And that problem is that on the one hand, we don't want to be oppressed by all the women. We just as soon disengage and play video games. But on the other hand, God requires us to be pure. <laughs> and that's a problem. Because men who disengage from women and play video games almost always are in bondage to their lust. Now, how do I know that? Well, first, I know myself. But I've spent my life now as a pastor and as an elder. I know what men confess. As a matter of fact, increasingly, I know what women confess. They're probably at 40% of pornography use on the internet now is women. And so, here's the, here's the deal. The Apostle Paul lived in a culture, the more you study the culture of the ancient Roman Empire, the more you learn about Rome and Corinth and all the other cities, the more you realize it is identical to Bloomington, to Madison, to New York City. It is identical to the world we live in. It was just as homosexual, or actually it was bisexual. It was just as decadent. It was just as filthy rich. It was just as in touch with taste and aesthetics. It was the, the, the most admired marriage had no children. They'd adopt their children. Who would want to nurse a baby? It just ruins your figure. It was oppressed with women. And it was that culture identical to ours to which the Apostle Paul wrote the words, what? It's better to marry than to burn. 
it's better to marry than to burn. And when the Apostle Paul wrote that, he knew that that word burn had a double entendre. It had a hidden meaning. It was a pun. And so the most obvious meaning is burn with lust. He's talking about sexual immorality. But Jesus had said that it, about sexual immorality, that it would be better for you to cut your hand off and gouge out your eye than to, for you to go into heaven with your hand intact and your eye intact than to go to hell or to go to hell with them intact, go to heaven with them off. In other words, live with eternity in your mind. Live with the judgment seat of God in mind. It's better to marry than to burn. Okay. And so here you have all these men who are sitting home playing video games and pleasuring themselves, if, if you will. And women too. And you have called me to preach the gospel. And in our culture, a central part of the gospel is for me to proclaim, it's better to marry than to burn. But when I do this, what happens is all these red pill MGTOW men and a bunch of women say, oh, you're punishing me. You're beating up on me. You know, I don't have any obligation to get married. And so then I write, a post talking about the bitterness of men today and how men who are bitter are men who are clinging to victim status and are incredibly weak and impotent. That anybody that lives their life in bondage to bitterness is an impotent man. (laughs) You know, right? You all understand this. And then they say, oh, you're beating up on me. You know, don't beat up, you're punishing me. It's not my fault, you know, I don't have any duty to get married. And they completely miss the fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said it's better to marry than to burn. Now, that's not a very romantic view of marriage. And my wife and I have arguments about this. I'll talk to her about gay men. Not gay, 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 gay men, not gay men. All of us are gay today. But I'm talking about gay, gay men. You know, you have to be sophisticated with your use of this word gay. You know, there are gay men, and that's all of us. (laughs) And then there are gay, gay men. And gay, gay men are men that want to get it on with other men. And I'll say to her... The Apostle Paul was writing gay gay men when he wrote, it's better to marry than to burn. It's so clear. And we know that gay gay men are entirely capable of being married and having children because before this particular period in time, all gay gay men had wives and they all had children. And they had a boy on the side. Read the ancient history. Read Greece. Read Rome. (laughs) It's, it's a figment of our imaginations that a man, and the statistics when you ask blind surveys of men who say they're gay, uh, I won't go into the details, but it's clear that this is not something that keeps them from being able to be married. <laughs> okay? Okay. All right. That's a lie of the media, and it's been intentionally created to cause all of us to think that 
they're more pitiful than they even are. And it's just not true. They're very capable of being married. And so when you have a culture of men who are bitter about women, who do not want to marry, who say they have no obligation to marry, who are entirely comfortable playing video games and pleasuring themselves at home, and who are gay, gay, and gay, and who don't like you to tell them that they need to get married so they don't burn, because they have no desire for marriage. Why? Well, many times because they do not want to bear the responsibility of a husband and a father. And who's going to argue with them looking at the family courts today? It's awful. Any of you notice what's happened in the last two years in this very church? Come on, wake up. It's been awful. And so I was doing a podcast a couple years ago with Nathan. It's part of a series called The World We Made, which... uh, I would encourage you to listen to also. In the middle of the podcast, Nathan Alberson looked at me and he said, well, you know, why are you punishing me? He had said something, I don't remember what it was. And he looked at me and said, why are you punishing me? And I would say, it's fair to say, I came unhinged. I mean, I got so irritated with Nathan. Now, a lot of you don't know Nathan, but don't worry about him. We're very, very tight. We always have been. But I got so irritated at him. The the kind of irritation that you only can feel towards your son. You know what I'm saying? And here Nathan is. First of all, he weighs more than I do. Okay? Start with that. Second, he's brighter than I am. Brilliant. Third... He's taller than I am. Fourth, he's stronger than I am. And here this sniveling coward is looking at me and saying, why are you punishing me? It's pathetic. Now, I didn't call him a sniveling coward, but I really gave it to him. Why? Well, listen. Put yourself in Nathan's position where you're having a truth told you which you don't like and which feels like it's simply punishment. We've all been there. We've all been there with our moms and dads. We've all been there with older women and elders and pastors, with school teachers. And I tell you this whole story because I want you to understand that the world we live in is a world of softness, sentimentality, cloyingness, cotton candy, sugar, honey. Did I say softness? And so every time we come to the Bible, we come with the expectation, capital E, that God will deal with us the way we expect the authorities in our life to deal with us. And that means they will be concerned about whether or not we accept the way they speak to us as being proper, given their great personhood and individuality and dignity. And listen, if we come to God expecting God to not punish us, If we come to God expecting that God will take note of our victimhood and our bitterness and how 
hurt we are. You won't get five minutes in Scripture without shutting the pages. You won't do it. The Bible speaks of itself as being a hammer. The Bible speaks of itself as being a fire. The Bible speaks of itself as being God's words and thoughts, which are higher than us as the heavens are higher than the earth. It takes all the money of Amazon to get that dude up into the heavens. Okay? That's my preparation for our text this morning, okay? Don't sit there and be a victim. Don't sit there and self-pity. Okay? Because then the scripture won't help you. Okay? I keep saying okay. So I listened to this gospel album. And the man leading the choir stops in the middle of it, and he says, Can I get a witness? Okay? Okay. All right. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Romans chapter 11, verses 22 to 24. Behold, then... The kindness and severity of God. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul, you remember last week I said that uh, it, was, it was Charlie's sermon because Charlie, years ago, was an arborist. He worked at a nursery And Charlie has always loved plants. That's the thing that is, uh, other than his wife and family, that's the thing that is so precious to him. So he was always planting trees, right? And the Apostle Paul channels an arborist here at this section in explaining the relative absence of the Jews and the uh, presence of a mass of Gentiles in the church. And he likens it to the Jews being the root of an olive tree, and to the Gentiles being a branch of a wild olive tree. So the cultivated olive tree produces fruit, 
the branch of the wild olive is fruitless. If you go back to Romans 1, you'll see that the Apostle Paul describes the fruitlessness of the Gentiles. It's awful. It's awful. And it ends with homosexuality and lesbianism. But then, chapter 2, he switches to the Jews, and he shows that the Jews are even worse. Why worse? Well, because to whom much is given, much shall be required. That they have the law, that they have the covenant promises, they have the history, they have the fathers, and yet they themselves commit adultery, right? You remember at the beginning? And so throughout the book of Romans, we're dealing with this back and forth of, on the one hand, God's promises and choice of the Jews to be his people, but on the other hand, the absence of the Jews from the New Testament church, and they're hounding their Messiah to death, Jesus Christ, and calling down on them from God the blood of his son. His blood be on us and our children. And so you have this incredible racial tension in the book of Romans of Romans. You have real, real despising of the Jews, of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are filthy, and you look, it's a theme all through the New Testament. New Testament is constantly dealing with the Jews looking down their nose at the Gentiles and calling them dirty, saying to them at the very at the very center of their dirtiness is the fact that they're not circumcised. When they referred to the people of the world as being uncircumcised, that was the ultimate insult. And so, of course, the Judaizers say, clean yourself up. Men, be circumcised. That's the book of Galatians. Well, of course, the Gentiles reciprocate the hatred and despising. They say, okay, you despise us. Well, (laughs) nanny, nanny, poo-poo, we're the ones in the church. God's turned his back on you, and now it's us. And so you have racism, and then you have reciprocal racism, which is the way racism works. This reciprocal racism, we have a a term for, and the term is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has, Semitism has been rife through the people of God for 2,000 years. Make no mistake, you are anti-Semitic. And you say, oh, no, I'm not. And I say, well, then you don't need the book of Romans. And then I say to you, so do you need the book of Romans? And you say, well, I I think I do. And I say, well, then you're anti-Semitic. What does it mean to be anti-Semitic? It just means that as Gentiles, we look down our noses at the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ. How could we love Jesus and see Isaiah 53's fulfillment in the suffering servant of our Lord and not recognize what a terrible, godless, arrogant thing it was for the Jews to turn their back on Jesus? And properly, if you're thinking categorically about the Jews doing that, that's (laughs) anti-Semitism, you know? You're never supposed to think categorically about anybody today. If you do it about women, it's sexism. If you do it about men, it's correct. (laughs) Okay, okay. And the Apostle Paul's dealing with this, and he tries to explain to the Gentiles that they have no right to look down their noses and despise the Jews. And he says, look, you guys, you're wild olives. 
to any arborman, to any fruitman, to any orchardman, a wild olive, a wild, you know, crab apple is about equal, you know? And so what he's saying is, you guys, you ain't nothing. You're a wild olive. Okay, God grafted you in. Yeah, it's true. He grafted you in. But don't be conceited. You remember? This is what he just got done saying. He just got done saying, the verses before this, do not be conceited. For, because, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So God has cut the Jews off, and the Gentiles are conceited, they're anti-Semitic, and he says, okay, fine, you're going to be conceited about that. Hey, listen, he cut the Jews off, he can cut you off too. Then, precisely then, he says this, behold then the kindness and severity of God. Oh, oh, yes. What does the word behold mean? It means check out. Check out the kindness. It means look at. It means consider. It means study. It means meditate on. And what are we to meditate on? The kindness and the severity of God. You know how in the book of Ephesians, we get the command, I think it's the book of Ephesians, where it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. You remember that? How do you exasperate your children? Well, there are a lot of ways. There are as many ways to exasperate your children as there are fathers. But one of the principal ways fathers exasperate their children is by never commending them. Never saying, attaboy. Never saying, good job. Always raising the standard when your son meets the one you just put in front of him. You with me? And it drives sons bonkers. You want to take the heart out of your son, do that. Don't ever celebrate anything he does. Just tell him he's wrong, 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 wrong. And, you know, a father like that can give a good justification for it. He can say that, you know, if he ever stops to celebrate, then his son will get fat and lazy. You know? And the only way to turn his son into a son that one would be proud of is to just keep pulling the carrot further away from his nose, (laughs) you know, while you whack him on the bottom. Use both the stick and the carrot, but don't ever let him eat the carrot, you know? So there are many men today who here behold the kindness and severity of God, and all they can think about is their father. And all they can think about is the fact that they could never please their father. And so when they hear this, 
They're tempted to think that God is a father like their father, that it's impossible to please him. And I want to just say very clearly, this is not about God being an exasperating father. God is not a tyrant. God doesn't just explode out of nowhere. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from studying his kindness, which comes first. And we have a record in Scripture again and again and again of God's kindness. And oftentimes what men need who have been exasperated by their father is to restore in their minds and hearts a picture of God's kindness. Because God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. What is God's fatherly kindness to us? Well, number one, it was not good for the man to be alone. (laughs) The older I get, the more that's the kindness of God that I celebrate and the more I grieve for dawn. I have friends who are single and in their 60s and 70s now. I was talking to one of them recently and I said to him, you know, I have tons of grandchildren. And I said, I feel so sorry for you. He lives downtown. He's, he's in the city. Cosmopolitan. Urbane. Educated. Not aesthetically challenged. He's a dude. And so immediately he took umbrage. He's like, well, why, why would you... You know, nobody is single will ever admit that they want to be married or have a companion, let alone children, let alone grandchildren. And I said, oh, come on. The beauty of our grandchildren, it's just drop-dead gorgeous. Well, that softened him up. And he admitted at that point that maybe, just maybe, sometimes, when he's under the sheets at night, and he wakes up out of a dream, and he can't stiffen his resolve quite quickly enough, he might wish that he had a wife and children. In the Garden of Eden, God looked at Adam, and God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. How kind of God. At the beginning of the new book on marriage that Mary Lee and I and Josh Congrove and David Canfield have been working on, Um, there's a chapter talking about what a gift it is to be married. It's absolutely wonderful. We take this for granted. We we receive it as if it's, it's, it's a duty. No, no, no. It's a privilege. Can you imagine Joe Rice right now without Eleanor? That would be pitiful. Right, Joe? Absolutely pitiful. (laughs) Richard Tallman's sitting here thinking, yeah, she'd do better without me. (laughs) That's what you were thinking, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's a preacher, so (laughs) we talk to each other quietly while I preach. God's kindness in giving us women. We don't think about this. 
And I'm not just talking about wives. I'm saying women. Because women are a contribution to men corporately. They're, they're beautiful. And every man knows this. And every man loves women. I know you don't think that's true, but I'm telling you it's true. And then, Eve blew it, and then Adam blew it worse. He was such a wuss. She gave him the fruit. God came and called Adam to account. He said, oh, the woman you gave me, the woman that you gave me, she took of the fruit and ate it, and it's her fault. And do you know what God did? God had said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You remember that. And do you know that at the very time that Adam fell, God was so kind because God postponed death. And right then, God promised that he would send a redeemer. He even clothed them. God stooped to dressing Adam and Eve. If that isn't kindness, I don't know what is. The kindness of God. I think his kindness, obviously it's on display in all of Scripture, but I think his kindness is so incredibly on display with the sons of Israel in the wilderness in their wanderings from Egypt to the Promised Land. If you read that, I've been reading it recently, and God's kindness is unbelievable. As soon as their children escape the death angel, and they cross the Red Sea, you remember, the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, come after them, and they're loaded for bear. They're they're out to kill them. And what do the Israelites do? God's just rescued and rescued and rescued and rescued and rescued them. And immediately they're like, let us go back to the flesh pots of Bloomington. Because we don't like, you know, Hoosier National Forest. And so they cry out to God. They're so upset. And God's so kind, what does he do? He brings the Red Sea down on the heads of all the Egyptians and they all die. Remember that? In the face of their ingratitude and rebellion, God kills their enemies. And then you've got Miriam's song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And then, seemingly right away, they're angry because they don't have water. And again, they're rebellious, and they're moaning and groaning. We don't have water. We don't have water. And so God gives them water. Then they're moaning and groaning because they don't have bread. And so God sends manna. Then they're moaning and groaning because they don't have meat. And so God sends them quail. And if you've read it recently, did you notice that the quail were about a yard thick on the ground? (laughs) not just the occasional quail here or there. 
Then they moaned and groaned in Korah's rebellion. And did you notice how often God says, get away from them, Moses, I will consume them. And Moses pleads, pleads with God not to consume them. Then at the bottom of Mount Carmel, they they have this golden calf made, and then they party and, and commit fornication and adultery around this golden calf. And God puts up with them, and he's so kind. You say, oh, no, 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 he killed them. I say, oh, he didn't kill them. Oh, yes, yes, he killed them. I say, he killed a tiny number of them. Almost all of them survived. And then you have Miriam's rebellion. Again, an heir and her husband follows her in it. And God is so kind that he only makes Miriam wear her shame for seven days, as if her father had spit in her face. (laughs) Now, it's intense. She has leprosy for seven days. Camp can't move. She's outside of the camp wearing her shame. But we never think about what kindness of God that is. God kindly puts up with those people. They're his people. And he puts up with them and puts up with them. He is like a nursing mother. As I listen to Romans while I cut the grass... Right near the beginning of cutting the grass, probably about the time I'm finishing up the front yard, I hear this. It's Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Do you think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. What was the purpose of God putting up with the Israelites? The purpose was that his kindness would lead them to repentance. How can we not know that? We should call this, the kindness of God, the first wonder of the world. It is incredible. And listen, all of you, you look at your life. And if you're... If the history of your life were were written as it ought to be, it would be a record of the kindness of God leading you to repentance. It's the principal joy 
The reason pastors work is not for money, but it's for love. Love of God and love to see you grow in your love for God because often we're the ones you confess your sins to. And if heaven rejoices when a single sinner repents, what do you think your pastors and the older women of this church and the elders are doing? And I look around the church here, (laughs) what is my greatest privilege in life? I can just go from person after person after person in this church and tell the story of the kindness of God leading you to repentance. Now, I'm going to do something that will make you uncomfortable, but I'm not just stupid. You know that there was a congregational meeting a little while ago, and you know I got mad at a certain man at the end of the meeting. Any of you there? Did you see me mad at Mike? I was mad. Mike, was I mad at you? Yeah, just a little bit, he says. And... Remember what I said to you when he got done talking. I said, I want you all to know that I am not intimidated by Mike. You remember me saying that. Some of you don't know Mike. And so you don't know why I said that. And I would encourage you after this service, Mike, if you would come to the door and stand there. And every person that leaves, would you just give them a handshake? That's all you need to do. You don't need to say a word. Just stand there with your beard and give them a handshake. Okay, because he'll squeeze the snot out of your hand. (laughs) That was the first thing I ever noticed about Mike. He squeezed the snot out of my hand. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, okay, I know this dude. So, in the last couple of months, Mike and I have been fighting. I think that's fair to say. And I mean, we we've gone at it, hammer and tongs, and. I called him a couple days ago, and I have been thinking about the fight we've been having, and I've been thinking, and you always want to do this. You always, especially when you are certain you're right, you know what I'm saying, you want to make sure you think carefully about your opponent and what he's thinking. Because often, you put the worst spin on your opponent. And actually, often your opponent actually has certain things that he's been thinking that he hasn't told you. And of course, with Mike, he never tells you nothing. <laughs> that's his life, you know. You know? That, that's how he negotiates, you know. He don't tell you nothing. He don't show you his cards. He don't have cards. So I was thinking about Mike, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, I just realized something. I just realized why Mike did what he did. But of course, he had never told me this, you know? And I called him up, and I said, Mike, let me ask you a question. If this, this, and this, and this, would you have this and this? And he said, basically, he said, that's 100% right. And then I'm left in my stupidity. And I'm thinking, of course. Why did I not see that? Why did I not see that? Then I said to Mike, I said, but Mike, you needed your butt kicked. 
Now, why would I say that to Mike right when I realized a serious mistake I made that caused him a lot of pain? Why would I say that? Mike needs to be led to repentance. Now, why am I using him as an example? Well, I think with most of us that know Mike, if we know that Mike needs to be led to repentance, we know I need to be led to repentance, and we know Dave Carell needs to be led to repentance, and we know Brian Bailey, and we know Richard Tallman, and we know Joe Wright. We know all of us, all of us need the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. All of us need it. That's what the church does. That's who we are. And how on earth does the kindness of God lead us to repentance if we don't behold the severity of God? Does this make sense to you? I would even put it this way. I would say that We can never know the kindness of God except by seeing it against the severity of God. What is kindness? You know, you think of that scene in planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, where what's-his-face is going, kindness? Kindness? You know, what with Steve Martin, you know? He's just burned his car up, you know? He's, he's, he's absolutely driven Steve Martin crazy, John Candy has. Driven him stark, raving mad, and then he burns up their rental car. And then he realizes that his wallet and his credit cards are in the rental car. That John, and he's like, kindness! Kindness! When you see the severity of God, see it. Then you see his kindness. And that kindness leads you to repentance. And it's such a sweet thing. It's such a sweet thing. And so we look at the story of the sons of Israel in the wilderness And we just see kindness after kindness after kindness. They come to the lip, the edge of the promised land. God has promised it to them. He's been faithful. And then they rebel. And at that that precise moment, God is severe. And God says to them, All right, fine. Not a single one of you will enter the promised land. Not one of you. Not one of you. Only Caleb and Joshua. And when you see them banned from the promised land, when you see their bodies strewn across the wilderness over the next 40 years, 
what stark contrast that is to his kindness before that happened. They would not, they would not be led by God's kindness to repentance. They would not do it. Are you like that? Are you like that? Are you humble? Do you keep track of God's kindnesses to you without letting go of his severity? Do you love God and fear him together? Or do you demand that God not punish you and beat up on you? And do you have a litany of things where you've been done wrong? You know, that's all the Israelites were. They were a bunch of red pills and MGTOWs. You know? Just whining and whining and whining. They've been done wrong. And God put up with it for a long time. He was quite kind. And then came the severity. You remember what it says about that severity in the book of Hebrews? In the book of Hebrews, it says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And then scripture adds, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I just love this. It's not just the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but it's also our relationships to each other in the church, right? He says, encourage one another while it's still day. So this morning, I was in the back over in that corner, and there are several people here who are having a real battle coming to, the church, to church because they're, they're in play. You know what I mean by in play? They're just... They just don't want to come to church. They do not want to praise God. They don't want to pray to him, and they don't want to hear his word. And we're all that way at times, you know? This is the reality of us. And yet, a young man who has really been fighting about coming to church and who has not wanted to come, he was there this morning. And I'm in the back, and I see him there. And I... 
I didn't do it, but I wanted to go up behind him. And I wanted to give him a hug and tell him how happy it made me that he was here. Right? Encourage one another while it is still day. I don't want to see you fall. I love you. Listen, every single one of you needs to encourage each other while it is day. Every single thing we own and possess, our our children, should be used in a way that leads through kindness and affection the other people here in church with us to repentance. We all get to periods of time in our life where we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we need to encourage each other. You know how encouraging it is to have a little child come up and give you a hug. That is the reason there are children in this church. They're not for their parents. They're for the hard-hearted among us. This is why we touch each other. It's not sexual. It is with all purity. This is why we rebuke one another. We rebuke one another because we are committed to calling attention of one another to the kindness and the severity of God. We don't want to be dads and granddads who are passing out hard candy to each other. No, no. I can guarantee you that there are many men in this church that their love for me personally is solely because of my discipline of them. If you want your children to love you, show them the kindness and severity of God. If you want your children to trust you with your grandchildren, show your children the kindness and severity of God. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Now I have one other thing that I want to deal with before we're done. If you keep reading in this passage, you hit something that's very similar to what we read last week, which said, do not be conceited but fear, for if God did not spare the natural balances, he will not spare you either. And then in our text this morning, it says, to those who fell, severity, but to you, kindness. And then the typical Paul, if, (laughs) you know, if, well, if what? 
If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So in both places, what God, through the Apostle Paul, warns us of is that if we despise his kindness, if we refuse to repent, if we are arrogant and conceited, he will cut us off. And because we are biblical, notice I didn't say reformed. I didn't say Calvinist. I said because we're biblical and because we've just gone through the book of Romans, (laughs) we are very aware of the fact that God chooses us. And so we have a problem here, a problem that is equivalent to the freeze on a computer does not compute, hit the hard reset button, you know? How can God choose us from before history began? How can he choose us for himself and then tell us that if we don't continue in his grace, he will cut us off? If God chose us, why would he cut us off? And so we come to the conclusion that what's going on here is that God chose us, but then he says to us, but I won't be choosing you anymore if you don't stay in my grace. If you do not obey me, then I don't choose you no more. And so it's the old Arminian thing. I will call it Arminianism. All right, I won't call it biblical. Where you're like a young woman in love taking the daisy and pulling off the petals one by one. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Every night you go to bed and you say, dear Jesus, forgive me for Okay, he loves me. You don't want to go to sleep on he loves me not. Right? And so you're always in limbo. You're in perpetual limbo, not knowing whether this is a particular moment where you're in God's grace or not. Well, no, 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 no. That's not true. Because the Bible says that God chose us. We did not choose him. The Bible tells us that those who come to him, he will never cast out. The Bible tells us that I am convinced that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many of us here who often in our lives, the only thing that keeps us sane let alone cheerful, is knowing that God is a workman who finishes the job. I've told you that in my marriage, there are certain things that I've done to Mary Lee and apologize so many times that about five or 10 years into the marriage, I went to her one day, I said, lover, and I'm just gonna tell you what it is. It's my anger. It's a sin, and it has hurt Mary Lee. And I said to her one day, I said, lover, I know I'm apologizing again for my anger, but I'm afraid that I am sincere. And I also am afraid I'll do it again. Because we have a track record down and it isn't good. But the Bible says that God will complete the work he's begun in me. And that's the only thing I can hold out to you is the power of God. And so it's a precious thing to us, the promises of Scripture, that those who come to him, he will never cast out. It's precious to us that it says he will complete the work he's begun in us.
And so we come to a passage like this where it says to us, otherwise you also will be cut off. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. This is bait and switch. (laughs) You know, you got an ad in the newspaper that says one thing. You show up to buy the refrigerator and they say, well, actually, we don't have any of them in stock. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And so it looks like the Apostle Paul is, is taking with the other hand what he just gave us with one hand, right? And it really does discombobulate us. It's like, now what am I supposed to do with that? So let me tell you a couple of things, okay? It's at points like this that I read Calvin and Luther. And I have read Calvin, both on the text today and the text a week ago. And the first thing Calvin says here is, you have to understand, let me see how he says it. He says, Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's the previous verses, and he says this. He says, Paul's remarks are directed not so much to individuals as to the whole body of the Gentiles. So the first thing he says is he says, look, this, this cutting off, this, this warning does not really have as much to do with you as individuals as you as a corporate body. It has to do with the fact that God took the Jews and cut them off and replaced them, grafted in the Gentiles. But just as he cut off the Jews as a whole, he can cut off the Gentiles as a whole. And actually, that makes us feel better, right? Because you don't have to personalize that, you know? It's, it's like, okay, it's corporate. You know, it's not individual. But I wonder how many of you did not apply this to yourself individually when you heard it read from Scripture. (laughs) I think probably every single one of us here, when we heard it read, thought, "Ah, ah, 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 cut me off. Me, me, myself, and I. I think that's how we all hit it. And so I don't think the Apostle Paul was stupid in the way he wrote, nor the Holy Spirit in how he inspired this to be written. I'm absolutely confident that God intended us to go, (laughs) behold the severity of God. Okay. So at first blush, that's how Calvin deals with it. But then Calvin goes on. And Calvin says this, if the Jews were cut off on account of their unbelief and the Gentiles ingrafted by faith, they have no other course than to recall to mind the grace of God and thereby dispose themselves to modesty and submission. The natural inherent property of faith is to produce in his self-abasement and fear. And then he goes on and he says, God intends us to have a double state of mind. Okay? In other words, we should be of two minds about ourselves. And you say, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about hearing this passage read to me. Well, how can Calvin say it's corporate and then say he intends God, God intends us to be double-minded? to have two minds about the subject. 
Well, listen to what he says next. He says, It is not enough to have embraced only once the grace of God, unless during the whole course of your life you follow his call. So first it's corporate, but now you. It's not enough to embrace God once. Your whole life you were to follow his call. And you go, yeah, that's a little bit more what I felt the passage was saying. And then he says, it is our general neglect of these matters which ought rightly to have instructed us in humility that is the source of our great license in posing inquisitive arguments. In other words, we neglect, we, we, we neglect the warnings of Scripture to see if we stand in the faith, to consider the severity of God, to remember that we could be cut off. He says, this is behind our tendency to pose inquisitive arguments. Now, I know Eric knows what he's talking about here <laughs> because Eric's an academic, an academician, and academicians often pose very complicated arguments as a way of forgetting themselves. You know, it's such a relief to think about complications when I am so simple. I'd like to forget that I'm close to an animal. <laughs> and I'd like to think deeply and write deep papers, you know? I would like to get lost in game theory, <laughs> you know? Because it's an endlessly interesting and complicated subject. And then Calvin says, however, it would be improper to say in particular of any of the godly that God had mercy on him when he chose him on condition that he should continue in his mercy. <laughs> so see what Calvin's doing. Calvin is talking about the kindness of God and the severity, the kindness, the severity, the kindness, the severity. Calvin is, is, is floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. Do you see this? He's giving with this hand, taking with this, and then giving again with this hand. He's back and forth, all right? Then he writes this. Although in the first place, this cannot happen to the elect. They can't be cut off, okay? They have need of such warning in order to subdue the pride of the flesh, which as it is in fact opposed to their salvation, ought to be terror-stricken through fear of damnation. Isn't that fascinating? So he says it's corporate. He says, he weaves back and forth, but then he comes around to this. He says, look, your flesh is so um, strong in its influence of you. And arrogance and pride and conceit are so much a part of who we are that you need to be terror-stricken about damnation in order to subdue your flesh. And I want to tell you, this is what Scripture does. Again and again and again, Scripture induces terror in us when we consider the severity of God. 
And this is not wrong. And I keep telling you, in the God we fear and love, embrace. Last week when I was preaching, I wanted to use an illustration, and I didn't know that you would understand it, but I think I'm going to use it this week. And for good or ill, I am who you have. And one of my things is I like to scare my children and my wife. Okay? And so Hannah used to always get up in the middle of every meal and go up to use the bathroom. And it had this little wall next to the staircase, and we sat right under the wall, so she came down the stairs flouncing in her blondness. (laughs) You know? One day, I decided to scare her. And so I got down on my hands and knees. It was only like two feet from the wall. And when I noticed that she was about to step onto the third from last stair, I came around that wall and I went, like that. And immediately I wished I hadn't. Because sweet, dear, precious, beautiful little Hannah went into paroxysms of fear. She went like, (laughs) her little body just shook. It was like she was having a seizure. And I looked at her and I thought, she might die. I was so scared. I was more scared than she was, I think. (laughs) You know? And then she stopped and she kept flouncing down the stairs and came around the end and announced to the table, Daddy scared me half to death. (laughs) When that happens with a dog that's barking at a little child, or when a father rebukes a child, when a father scares a child, what are the child's natural instinct? The child's natural instinct is to throw their arms around you and cling to you. Do you understand that? In a father, fear and love embrace. I'm not telling you that what I did was good. But you understand my example. My example is that we understand perfectly that little children, their only way sometimes they deal with their fears is to cling to their mommy and their daddy. And that's what God intends when he tells us to consider the kindness and severity of God. He intends us to flee his severity and to cling to him. We don't have to say anything. All we have to do is cling to him. There's really nothing we can say. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. Let's pray. Father, we do cling to you. to you alone.
Whom have we in heaven but you? And aside from you, we desire nothing. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are our portion forever. We come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen.